ask you the question, who, is, who are the greatest men and women in the world today? How would you answer that question? What would be your opinion of who the greatest people in the world are? Maybe a notable world leader, someone like Queen Elizabeth, President Obama, our own Prime Minister, maybe someone rich or successful, someone like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, maybe a great athlete or sports star, LeBron James, Sidney Crosby, Serena Williams, maybe someone with a special talent in another field, someone like Celine Dion or Bono or J.K. Rowling, Jennifer Lawrence, Brad Pitt. There are so many different fields, so many different excellent people out there. Maybe you'd go on another side of things. Maybe you'd look at the spiritual side of things. And you say the greatest people have to be these spiritual leaders, someone like Tim Keller or Beth Moore or Chris Tomlin. Okay? We may answer the question of who is greatest in many different ways. Some of these people may deserve our esteem and others not at all. Now a second question for you. Did you ever want to be like any of those people? Do you ever want to grow up and be great like them in some way? I imagine most of us have at some point. I know that I dreamed at times of being a, a sports star or a famous spiritual leader. We all dream of that. But what if, what if being great has nothing to do with being like these types of people? What if greatness has nothing to do with influence, or wealth, or talent, or prestige, or status? What if true greatness should be defined in completely different terms? Believe it or not, I'd actually like to encourage you to pursue greatness today. I want you to push you in that, because just not greatness how you or I usually think of greatness. Not like these people we just talked about. I want to encourage you to pursue greatness as Jesus sees it. Greatness Jesus style. Okay? I believe we should aspire to greatness, but not in our eyes, not in our world's eyes, in God's eyes. Okay, please open your Bibles. You can turn to Luke chapter 22 with me. Luke 22, and we'll be beginning partway through the chapter in verse 24 today. So if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, that is on page 882. 882. We'll get you to Luke 22. As we approach the end of Luke, we see Jesus quickly approaching the end of his time on earth here. He's less than 24 hours away from the cross. But first, as we'll see today, Jesus had some things to deal with. He had to deal with his disciples, mainly, who seemed to be the greatest in the world at something. They seemed to be the greatest in the world at missing the point. Okay? Let's pray, though, as we read these verses, that we won't miss the point today. That we'll read God's word, we will be convicted, we'll be changed by what we see. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to read your word and study it today, I do, I do pray for understanding that our hearts would be opened, that your spirit would teach us what it means to be a follower of you. I pray for your grace as we read these. I pray that you would convict our hearts where there are things that need to be convicted of. I pray that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, God. Spur us on to follow you with our whole hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, if you were with us, we ended really mid-scene as Jesus and his friends celebrated the Passover together. Jesus had just instituted the powerful and symbolic practice of the Lord's Supper. So he'd broken bread, which was meant to represent his body being torn apart. He had passed a cup of wine around, which symbolized the blood that would soon be shed. But right when you expect a time of maybe somber reflection and amazement or gratitude, 
It's pretty surprising what we actually see. Jesus revealed what was soon coming up, and then the disciples revealed that they hadn't yet grown up. Read with me in verse 20. This is what we saw last week. He had just he said, this is the cup that is poured out for you. This is a new covenant in my blood. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So, Passover interrogation time. They began questioning one another. A betrayer? Who would dare to betray Jesus? Okay, come on, show yourself. Someone around this table. Simon, you're a zealot. Hey, are you getting disillusioned with Jesus' peaceful ways? Uh, maybe James, son of thunder. You got some violent tendencies. What gives? Matthew, I never did like your type. Tax collectors. You still up to no good? Bartholomew, no one knows anything about you. Suspicions were running wild, right? Accusations were being thrown about. And likely, in, the, in response to the accusations, the disciples began trying to defend themselves. Right? Whoa, 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 hey, slow down now. Did you see how much I gave up to follow Jesus? Okay. You've got to be kidding me. Okay. No one is more passionate about following Jesus than I am. Please. Did you see how many people I've led to Jesus? Hey, hey, who here besides Jesus has ever walked on water? (laughs) And that's the only real logical way I can imagine that this situation digressed into a fight. They began accusing each other and then they started defending each other. And verse 24 says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Who was seen, regarded as the greatest, the most, maybe the most popular, or the most influential, or the most committed, most godly. Now talk about an inappropriate dispute at any time. Let alone right then around that table. Jesus had just talked again about how he was about to suffer and die. They might as well have been really spitting in his face with this stupid dispute. We've got to be careful here, because sometimes this can reflect our own ambitions. We might not necessarily admit it out loud, but we all want to be great. We all want to be great in some way. We want to be the smartest or the strongest or the, the, the most popular, the most successful person around. Maybe the best athlete or the best musician or the best artist. Maybe we want to be the greatest mom or dad, the greatest grandparent, the greatest sibling or, or spouse. Even in the church, this infiltrates us. We want to be the greatest, we want to have the greatest ministry, or we want to have the greatest church. We all want to be great. And then, we want people to notice, to appreciate us. Philip Reichen says that we find it hard to be happy until we reach the greatness we think we deserve, and even then, we will not be happy unless other people know how great we are. These selfish and prideful aspirations for greatness had taken control of the disciples here. Now, if I was Jesus, I think I'd either have been crying or steaming mad. Maybe both. But remarkably, we don't see or we don't sense these emotions in his response here. Jesus decided to take this opportunity to teach his disciples about what it really meant to be great. How to really be great. So what does it mean to be great? Should we try to achieve greatness? How can we? And the first thing we're going to see here from Jesus' teaching is simply this. 
that Jesus' definition of greatness is very different than this world's idea of greatness. Jesus' definition of greatness is quite different than this world's definition of greatness. Okay, if you imagine the scene, whole table's in an uproar. Jesus probably had to, he had to get his disciples' attention somehow, and he got them all calmed down, settled down, and then he said this in verse 25, and Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. So what we see in these verses, whereas the world's idea of greatness is getting higher, getting above, and getting ahead, Jesus' idea of greatness is getting lower, getting below, getting behind. What Jesus wants from his followers is exactly opposite of what the world pushes us toward. Now, I get this primarily from the five little words at the beginning of verse 26. It said, but not so with you. But not so with you. So what is the world's idea of greatness like? We see that in verse 25. Okay, verse 25 says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. In Jesus' day... The greatest people in society, in a number of different ways, had to be the kings. They had emperors, the leaders of nations. Kings had the greatest authority around. They had the greatest influence. They exercised lordship over their subjects, as he says here. Kings usually had the greatest wealth of anyone in their kingdom. But they liked people to think of them as generous and philanthropic. So they provided good things for their people. And then they wanted to be called benefactors. And therefore, kings also usually, unless they were really evil, they earned the greatest prestige, the greatest status in their nation. Influential, rich, respected. They had it all. Power, profit, prestige, precisely the same motivations that just drive almost all ambitions to this day, whether we're a prince or a pauper. We want the same things. But not so with you. Not so with the disciples. Not so with Jesus' church. Verse 26 tells us that there are great followers of Jesus, and there are leaders, but they should look different. Do you see that? But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Okay? Pastors are not presidents. Church leaders are not lords. Elders are not CEOs. Christians are not to be ambitious for power or wealth or status. So, what should we be ambitious for? What should we be known for? Well, did you notice the defining feature of greatness according to Jesus? It's actually serving. Serving. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is another one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who serves. Now, ironically, making yourself the least is actually what makes you great. And that's because that's what Jesus did. The answer to the question, how can we be great, is by being like Jesus. See, this is the second point we'll see. Jesus exemplified true greatness by humbly serving us. Jesus set an example of true greatness for us that we should do likewise of humble service. 
It's yet another feature of the upside-down kingdom. Or should I say the right-side-up kingdom? And the kingdom reverses so much. The poor will be rich. The weak will be strong. The last will be first. And here, the servant will be greatest. Now, back in Luke 9, after an eerily similar argument against, amongst the disciples about greatness, it seemed to be a recurring theme with them. Jesus took a child... He set the child next to him and had them stand there and said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And then, more recently in chapter 18, he told his disciples, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So it's no surprise here that he says... Not so with you, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. We must become like children in order to even join Jesus' kingdom. With simple faith, natural love, humble wonder, real total dependence on him. That's the defining feature of a child, dependence. And then, if we want to be great in the kingdom, start serving, like Jesus did. Verse 27 again, For who is the greatest, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? In Jesus' day, just so you know, tables were usually set low to the ground, and then people would sat on the floor around, on pillows or cushions, and so that's why they reclined at table. And people who were well-off in that day often had servants to serve them, whether hired or enslaved or indentured, many different types of servants. But Jesus asked the question, who's greater, the master or the servant? Who's greater, the master or the servant? Who is the greater, one who reclines at the table, that's the master, or the one who serves? A master would sit and enjoy a meal while his servants waited on the table. Now, this is a pretty easy question. It could have been rhetorical. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? The answer is yes. Okay? Absolutely, all men are created equal. But by any human definition of greatness... Any human definition of greatness, a master is higher up than his servant. Right? Okay? But then Jesus threw the big twist in. In verse 27, Is it not the one who reclines the table? The master is greater, but I am among you as the one who serves. This would have turned everything on its head. Jesus said he was the servant. Servants were the least prestigious people. They weren't supposed to be great. But Jesus was great. He was absolutely the greatest person in all of history. This was the creator, the sustainer, of the entire universe, who had been adored by angels. He was the only perfect, sinless man ever. He was the miracle-working Messiah. And yet, he was among us as the one who serves the least, and yet the greatest. He was in the process of redefining greatness according to his kingdom standards. Earlier he had said, not so with you. Now he was saying, not so with me. And serving definitely isn't prestigious. Serving doesn't usually gain one power or wealth or anything else we usually think of when we think of greatness. But serving out of love is how Jesus himself revealed his greatness, how he showed it to us. John, the Gospel of John records this, this very meal, and he says that John, Jesus actually got down from his table and served his disciples by washing their filthy feet, a job that was reserved for the lowest of low servants. But Jesus loved, so he served. 
and we must follow his example. In Philippians 2, God's word says this, Let each of you not look, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The epitome of Jesus' humble service wouldn't happen on this night in Luke 22. It happened the next day. As Jesus lowered himself to the place of a common criminal and bled and died for us. But remember how this passage in Philippians ends. God exalts the humble. Jesus was raised from the dead and then taken back into heaven. In verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, we look beyond our own interests. Therefore, we make ourselves nothing. We take the form of a humble servant. And in so doing, we find true greatness. Leon Morris points out that Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. So, are we seeking to imitate Jesus' example in serving those around us in love? Taking whatever opportunities God brings across our path to serve? Or are there things that are beneath us or below our dignity? Nothing is below the dignity of a true disciple of Jesus. Nothing. Are we serving others out of love or are we sitting on our bums in our pews waiting to be served? True greatness, true greatness in a church like our own, true greatness isn't necessarily found in pulpits or on platforms. Greatness is found in the nursery, wiping bums. Greatness is found in the parking lot, directing traffic. Greatness is found in the homeless shelter, putting sandwiches together. Greatness is found next to the outcast, befriending them, welcoming them. Greatness is found in folding bulletins, counting money, or opening up your home for a small group. Greatness is found in the warlike trenches of children's church, or in the dirty sink water in the kitchen. Or across the ocean, in unheralded and unglorified mission fields. Greatness is found where we least expect it. It's in those who serve humbly and selflessly, like Jesus. Now some of you may be thinking, well, if that's greatness, I don't want it. Serving is not necessarily fun or easy or glamorous or gratifying or pleasant. But I'll tell you this. It is definitely rewarding. 
Not only does God give an emotional sense of reward in the here and now, a satisfaction or fulfillment, he gives the promise of great, immeasurable reward in the future. For instance, look what he promises disciples here. Verse 28 says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, the specifics of this promise were obviously meant only for the twelve apostles. And Jesus recognized that though they weren't perfect, they'd stuck with him. And by his grace, he promised him that they would reign with him one day. But while these verses primarily apply to the disciples, the broader kingdom blessings are also for us. Okay, receiving the kingdom, eating and drinking from God's table, these are for all of God's followers, all of his servants. But really, these verses especially prove point number one today, right? God's definition of greatness is totally different than our world's. And that's because it's really not of this world. It's heavenly greatness. It's not earthly greatness. But do these verses, these verse 28 to 30 here, talking to the disciples, do they not scream grace to you? Mercy? It's astonishing grace. Remember, the disciples just got done fighting like toddlers over a toy. They were totally missing the heavy and historical significance of the moment. They were making light of Jesus' sacrifice. And yet, Jesus didn't take the opportunity to rebuke them. He could have, but he didn't. He took the opportunity to encourage them. He basically told them, you will be great one day. You will be great one day. They weren't great then, that's for sure. But if they serve the Lord, he'd reward them. And he'd graciously reward them with greatness that they couldn't even imagine. The same principle applies to us. Serving is greatness now. And it will result in heavenly greatness. And Jesus set the example for us every step along the way. Really, Jesus didn't just redefine greatness. He defined greatness himself. Now, at this point, some of us may wonder, how could we ever live up to his example? It seems impossible. Sure, we can serve people, but to serve like Jesus served, that seems beyond us. To be like him, we can't live up to that standard. That's too high, too hard. You know what? You're right. We can't be like Jesus on our own. And that's why what comes next in this passage is both tragic and very encouraging at the same time. Jesus turns to one of his disciples in particular, Peter. And he tells Peter that he's about to be a big fat failure. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is heartbreaking. Peter who was quite possibly the greatest disciple, was about to display the worst example of greatness. And yet I think that hope 
shines through Jesus' prediction here. Here's what we learn. That Jesus can see us through our failures of greatness. Jesus can see us through our failures of greatness. And if we're true followers of his, you can take this as a promise that he will see us through our failures of all kinds. What I found striking as I studied this was how this prediction of failure came immediately after the promise of reward. It's a stark difference. Peter, you're going to be a great ruler one day. But tonight... You're going to flunk the test. You can sense Jesus' sympathy, can't you, as he repeats Peter's name at the beginning, his birth name, Simon. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So, notice, Judas wasn't the only disciple Satan was after. In fact, he was after them all. The word for you in verse 31 is actually plural, like you all. He was talking to all the disciples, whereas verse 32, he goes back to singular, talking specifically to Peter. So Jesus says Satan wanted to sift all the disciples, to sift them like wheat. And when a, a farmer harvests wheat, there are good and usable parts of the grain, and then there are worthless parts of the grain, what we call chaff. And this chaff weighs less than the good grain. So what farmers would do is they'd throw the whole batch of wheat up in the air and they let the wind carry away the chaff while the good grain would fall back down to the earth. It's called sifting the wheat. Okay? Letting the wind just carry away the chaff. So Satan thought that if he could test the disciples, they'd all blow away like chaff. Much like he thought he could do with Job back in the day, right? In the Old Testament. See, the devil is set on the destruction of God's work and God's people. So he wanted to sift the disciples like we. And yet God, in his providence, allowed it. Was Satan successful? probably thought he was, as they all did, run away, but the good grain was falling back to the earth. But in the short term, while Satan wanted all the disciples, Jesus knew that he would especially get to Peter. And in the next several hours, Peter, this rock of a disciple, would crumble. This who we know as a great apostle, who had asked, and even in Jesus' ministry, where else can we go, Jesus? You have the words of life. Who had, who had declared that, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No doubt, he would bail on his Lord. Denying even knowing who Jesus was. Three times straight. Even though Peter fiercely denied that he would ever deny Jesus, he did. His guarantee in verse 33 was really its rash overconfidence. It ended up being a lie. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Can't you see Jesus just shaking his head sadly here? As Peter tells him this. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I can only imagine how much those words must have shaken Peter up. But while Peter would fail in the short term, in the long term, his faith would not fail. Why not? Because Jesus determined that Peter's faith would not fail. Did you see that? Verse 31. 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus saw Peter through his epic failure. God answered Jesus' prayer, and Peter ended up turning back or repenting once again. And when he did, he followed Jesus' instructions here. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus basically told them, take a leadership role. Okay, build up your brothers. And this is precisely what Peter did as he became a pillar in the early church. In your attempts to follow Jesus... I guarantee you that you will constantly fall short. Satan wants you to. And he will throw all the fiery darts at you that he can. You will struggle with sins as you seek to experience victory over them. You will try to do good, to serve others, and you will end up never sufficiently doing good. And you will experience trials of many kinds in which, in the midst of them, you may feel like failure. But there is hope in the middle of failure. And that's all because of Jesus. Jesus can see you through it. He can strengthen you for it. And he receives the glory for it. Jesus really did two things for Peter and his failure. It says he prayed for Peter, and then he died for Peter. Believe it or not, he's done the same two things for us. He prayed or he prays for us. Romans 8.34 says that Christ Jesus, who died and was raised, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us or praying for us. In Hebrews 7.25 says, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He prays, and he died for us while we were still sinners, still failures. He died. Therefore, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. If you've never experienced God's grace for your failures, then I invite you to today. You will always fall short, but Christ will never fall short. And if Christ is your Savior, he will see you through it all. So I admonish you, make sure that you have repented of your sin and run to the cross of Christ this morning. Make sure, find his mercy and his grace and love that meets you there. I pray that we will all see Jesus' greatness today and that we will never be the same for it. And then I also pray that we will all spend the rest of our lives proclaiming his greatness for all to hear. There are several last verses here that I want to read before we end today. As Jesus really wraps up their time around the Passover table. Now these verses, I'm going to warn you, can be fairly confusing. But I think that some truths shine through the confusion. Specifically, as we've seen throughout the passage, Jesus' greatness shines through these verses. And what we'll see is this. Not only does Jesus' greatness see us through our failures, but Jesus' greatness shines through even our failures. 
Jesus' greatness shines through our failures. It is not dimmed by them. He is glorified regardless. Read along with me in verse 35. And he said to his disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now some context here. Back in Luke 9, Jesus had sent his disciples out on really a special short-term missions trip of sorts. To proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal diseases all over Israel, to proclaim that Jesus had come. And when he sent them out, he told them not to take anything with them except the clothes on their back. Okay? No money, no extra clothes, no food, nothing. And the reason he did this is so that they learn to rely and depend on God completely for everything. And we saw that God had provided everything for them, like they say here. He asked, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. God had provided. But now, Jesus gave them some very different instructions. Verse 36, he said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, we don't know exactly why he told them to do these things. But it's probably because the times they were changing. Most scholars believe that Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was coming. Soon... Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. He would be considered a lawbreaker, a criminal. And therefore, so would they. So his words here were kind of like a pep talk. Ready yourselves. Get ready. You'll be on the run. And you'll need to be able to provide for yourselves. So grab a supply bag. This is the way that God chose to provide for them in this season. Now, most scholars believe that Jesus' instructions about buying swords was metaphorical. And that could be the case. However, I think there might be something deeper going on here. It seems to me like verse 37 gives the reason why Jesus told them to go buy some swords. And it's actually a fairly surprising reason. He said, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. I think Jesus was telling his disciples, I need you to have swords in order to fulfill scripture. I need you to represent the transgressors among whom I'm going to be numbered. I don't think Jesus meant the swords to be used for fighting or even for self-defense. In fact, I know so because of the way Jesus responds later when Peter whips out a sword. But I also don't think the swords were only supposed to be metaphorical either. I think Jesus wanted his disciples to play a part in acting out the script of Scripture. The Scripture that Jesus was talking about was Isaiah 53.12. From the well-known passage we refer to as the suffering servant. It's fitting. Suffering servant, God's servant, the one who serves. Verse 12 in that chapter says this. He poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, he died for the transgressors and now he prays for us. If this was in fact, the case that Jesus wanted his disciples to play the role of fellow criminals. 
then it would mean that when he said it is enough in verse 38, that he was saying two swords were enough to ensure that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Jesus was about to be arrested very soon. And when he was, he'd be found in the company of armed vagabonds, zealots, tax collectors, and traitors. And scripture would be fulfilled. What this would imply is, is also the disciples were all about to be the biggest failures of their lives. And as it turned out, they did all abandon Jesus to the very last one of them. But right in the middle of their failures, God was working something bigger. God was fulfilling his prophecies through them. He was working out his sovereign plan. Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus would be lumped in with the criminals. And through it all, even through his followers' failures, Jesus' greatness would shine through. He was the promised one. He was the suffering servant. He was God in human flesh. And he would die, but he would rise again, and he would be glorified. Through it all. And one of the most incredible things about Jesus being numbered among transgressors, among sinners, is as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be no sin, who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was numbered among sinners, so that we could be numbered among the righteous. He was counted as a transgressor, so that we would no longer be seen that way. Because of Christ, we are no longer seen as failures, even when we fail considered righteous, good, even holy in God's sight. Jesus used the failures of his disciples to bring him glory. And he went on to use the disciples in amazing ways to do just incredible great things for him and the church in the years ahead. So where are the areas that you have failed? Where have you fallen short? What sins do you always seem to struggle with? Where do you feel hopeless? Take heart today. God can see you through your failures, and he will shine through your failures. This doesn't mean that we should want or seek to fail him. Not at all. Okay? But this means that whenever we do fall short, God is still working on and through us. We've got to stop seeing greatness through our world's eyes, through our own eyes. And we've got to start seeing greatness through Jesus' eyes, through heaven's eyes. Because in the long run... This world's present greatness will mean nothing. While greatness in the kingdom of God will mean everything. C. Farrar, an author, once talked about having this perspective. And he imagined a conversation that we might have if we went back in time, if we time-traveled back to the time of Jesus, planted ourselves in a busy marketplace, and started interviewing random citizens. And we asked them the question, Who do you think that people 2,000 years from now will remember from your generation? They maybe think and say someone like, well, Caesar, Nero, right? These emperors. Then we might ask, well, what about the group of people around known as Christians? Don't you think that anyone will remember them or their leaders 2,000 years from now? They probably are saying, are you kidding? That group of nobodies, they don't have any influence. They aren't important or great. 
You mean you haven't heard of Paul or Peter? What, don't you think they'll be remembered? What about Mary and Martha? Wasn't their brother Lazarus like, involved in some miracle or something? I'm telling you, these people are insignificant. The only thing I ever hear of their leaders is they're always ending up in jail. And trust me, in 2,000 years, nobody will give them a thought. Then Stephen concludes, so here we are, 2,000 years later. And isn't it interesting that we name our children Peter and Paul, Mary and Martha, and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. interesting? If 2,000 years can change our definitions of greatness, how much more will eternity? True greatness is not defined the way our world defines it. It's only found in Jesus. Jesus exemplified it. He defined it, he displayed it, he shared it, and he's worshipped for it. May his glory and his greatness shine through us, even when we least expect it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray for this type of greatness, for heavenly greatness. May we not be swept away by the ambitions and the passions and desires of this world. May we throw them aside as distractions. May we pursue loving you with our whole hearts, loving others with all of our beings, serving them. May this be our passion. May it consume us to consume you. Pray that we would follow in your footsteps and you know that we need your help. So we pray for that. We pray for your spirit to empower us to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.